Thank you. Please be seated. Wonderful singing, beloved. Well, happy Advent season. As you can see with the decorations, it's that time of the year where the world focuses on Christmas. And we are reminded as believers in Jesus Christ that the meaning of Christmas is the birth of our Savior. And Jesus comes to us, the Word become flesh, pointing us forward towards Easter where salvation is accomplished for the nations. Well, we are continuing our series through the Sermon on the Mount, and we do have a, uh, an updated December study guide, digital download in digital form available for you. If you simply log on to our guest Wi-Fi right now, the first page that will come up will we'll provide the link at the bottom of that page for you to download either of the study guides. And so we'll try to do that each month, uh, time permitting, all right? Well, let me pray for us, because we have a very familiar passage that we're going to get into today. Let me pray that the Lord would convict us, that the Lord would confront us through his word. So let's pray. Father, today we see your truth revealed to us in a passage that is familiar to many of us. But Lord, we know that Jesus' tone His intention is to confront the leaders of Israel and Israel who failed in living out their purpose. And by implication, Lord, that confronts us as professing believers. Lord, I pray, Lord, that you would give us tender hearts, that through your spirit, Lord, you would illuminate the text for us at a deeper level and then help us, Lord, to apply this passage in a very practical way. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. Take God's word and turn with me to Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. Matthew chapter 5, verses 13 to 16. This is the passage about salt and light. It's a familiar passage as we alluded to. Even if you are new to Christianity... You've probably heard it somewhere where Jesus calls believers to be salt and light. You've heard the phrase that we are to be the light of the world. We are to be the salt of the earth. These are familiar phrases to us. And it's very clear that all Christians believe that what Jesus is talking about is he's talking about the impact that the church ought to have on on society. That impact that the church is supposed to have on this world, and what Jesus is confronting is the loss of purpose and mission. So let me read this to you because it's only a few verses. I'll read this to you, Matthew chapter 5, starting in verse 13. Jesus says, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Verse 14. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket but on a stand. And it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. So very clear, there's a purpose to salt. 
If it loses its saltiness, it's no longer effective, it's no longer useful. What's the purpose of salt? There's a purpose for a city on a hill. No one builds a city on a hill to be hidden. You would, you would do that in a valley or some, some remote enclave, but you would not build a city on a hill to be hidden. That's the purpose of a city on a hill. It's to be seen. In the same way, you don't light a lamp in a house only to cover it. What's the purpose of lighting a lamp? It's so that it gives illumination and light to the whole house. I think these illustrations are very clear. I mean, we'll exposit it uh, verse by verse as we go through. But I want to begin with the people that Jesus is confronting. Jesus is confronting a context. And I believe for a few of these contexts or a few of these groups of Jewish people of Jesus' day, there's practical implication for how American or Western evangelicals try to make an impact on this world or whether we fail to make an impact on this world. First, there are the Pharisees. Now, the Pharisees are the conservatives. This would be the closest to conservative evangelicals. The Pharisees were a group of mostly lay people who prided themselves and devoted themselves to the application of Torah, meaning the law of the Lord. But the Pharisees were, were conservative because not only did they believe in the Pentateuch, Penta, five, the first five books of the Old Testament, the books of Moses, but they also believed in the writings and the prophets, which means they believed in the entire Hebrew Old Testament. And that's why they believed in the doctrine of the resurrection. They believed in eternal life. They believed in angels and demons because the prophets and the writings alluded to these things. And so in many ways, they sought to study the Bible. They were anti-Roman. They were against the Roman government. But they were also unwilling to support violence and insurrection against the Roman government. They believed that that was not the way to bring about, to bring about the righteousness of God's kingdom. But what they did was they, they, they built a fence around the law. And we explained a couple weeks ago how they prided themselves in the interpretation of the rabbis over the years. And in a sense, imagine, and we gave this illustration, imagine if, if your Bible was full of our sermons, our explanations, our exposition of the scripture, that you were 20 years past and no longer are you reading the Bible as the people of God. Instead, you're reading our sermons and our explanations and our various applications. You can see that through the centuries, it's easy then for the Pharisees to then twist some of those applications of the Torah and the Bible to meet their own needs, and that's what happened. And so Jesus confronts them because he confronts their hypocrisy. So where salt loses its saltiness, they lost their purity. And we'll see this in a moment when we get to the text, right? But they lost their purity. They were, they were no longer pure in character. They were hypocritical. And Jesus says, you have lost your salt. You, in fact, aren't caring and you don't have a heart for the Gentiles and the broken. So you've lost your light. And so this is a confrontational exposition, right? But in many ways, as evangelical Christians, we are conservative, and we say to ourselves, man, have we lost our saltiness? Do we have pure motives, or are we just going through routine of going to church, giving, and serving? Where's our character? Are we cultivating purity in our hearts, holiness, growth in Christ, and are we shining our light 
Not because of something that we do, but because of who we are and what Jesus is doing in us. That's where it confronts us. Then there's the Sadducees. I don't think there's too many Sadducees in here, at least in in our context. But the Sadducees were a small group of wealthy elitists. And so whereas the Pharisees operated mostly in the synagogue, the Sadducees controlled the temple operation. And Jesus confronts them because they had corrupted the temple operation. They weren't against the Roman Empire. They weren't. Because they took advantage of the fact that Rome let them run the temple. So they ran the temple however they wanted to run it. And so they would, they would tax, heavy taxes, on the common people. Right? And, and, and they, would, they would use the temple system to basically get their way and to gain money. So when you think of liberal, people who are liberal in their theology and politically tied to big government, and when you think of that, think of these liberal, corrupt religious leaders who in the name of organized religion seek to make money off the common people, and that's the Sadducees. Then there were the Essenes. The Essenes were separatists. The Essenes were a group who, when, when you talk about being in the world and not of the world, they took that to an extreme. Right? And they said, we want nothing to do with the Roman government. We want nothing to do with, with secular society. We are going to go into our evangelical enclave, if you will. That's the common application. Right? But back then, they would go into the wilderness or the desert, and they would have their holy communities. And that's good only to a point, but you see this in today's evangelical society with neo-Anabaptists. This is the Anabaptist movement where they don't really want anything to do with politics or the secular world, and they go into their little enclaves. This is the fortress mentality. And, And to the extreme, you would see this in the Christian Amish, right, where the world is bad and evil, the world is going to hell in a handbasket. Therefore, we just wait for Jesus' return. And we don't really go out and engage society at all. Now, here's the problem with the separatists. Though they want to be holy, they fail to see the problem is not external, it's internal. And as long as they are in the church, which means as long as there's human beings in the church, the problem is within the heart. So you can separate yourself, fortress mentality from the world, but as long as you're in the church, there's sin. And they fail to realize that until you deal with the internal issue, that we bring the problems and the sin of this world and worldliness, and it creeps in to whatever fortress you're trying to build because it's spiritual and there's spiritual warfare and the battle's different. And so Jesus, he doesn't confront them as as readily, but the Essenes are not being salt and light either, right? Then there's the zealots, which Jesus had already confronted. These are the revolutionaries. These are the insurrectionists. These are the people who are willing to violently and publicly protest and even fight and bring rebellion against Rome. And we know that Jesus said a couple weeks ago, we saw in Matthew chapter 5 in the Beatitudes, blessed are the peacemakers, for they shall be called sons of God. This is the world of the New Testament. And everybody else was common folk in terms of the Jewish religion. This was the world that Jesus confronted. And in many ways, Jesus is confronting our world today. You see, in Matthew chapter 5 now, 13 to 16, the passage that we read, the passage about salt and light, it illustrates character of being, the essence of who we are in Christ. 
And, it, and that's how it ties, the salt and light passages tie back to the qualities and values listed in the Beatitudes. And you're going to see this blessed are language in verses 13 and 14. So that leads us to point number one. Point number one is salt and light are about being, not doing. Point number one, salt and light are about being and not doing. I want you to notice Matthew chapter 5, verse 13, the first part, Jesus, he continues to use the same descriptive language as the Beatitudes, the blessed are, blessed are, blessed are. And he says, you are the salt of the earth. Then in verse 14, he says, you are the light of the world. And the reason why we want to emphasize this is we often think of evangelism, which is a good thing to do, and missions, which is a good thing to embark upon. We often think of evangelism and missions as something that we do. But if you're Christian, then our witness is not so much like a light switch where you can turn it on when it's time to be on mission, and then you turn it off when you go home or when you're not on mission or when you're at work, right? And so in this sense, it is about being. Salt and light are about being not doing. And so it's not so much about a faithful project, but a faithful presence. We are to be a faithful presence of his kingdom wherever he's called us to. And we'll see this more when we get to our application towards the end of this passage. But for now, I want you to take your Bibles, and I want you to see this with your very own eyes. It was a lot to put on the the screen, so I didn't put it on the PowerPoint. But turn to Luke 11. Luke 11. Luke 11, 33 to 35. Now, this is important because Luke records, by means of cross-reference, he records his version of this account, and he emphasizes how being light is about who you are. It's something that happens within you, right? So it's not so much going on missions, though that's important. That's a great commission. It's not so much doing evangelism, though that's part of shining your light. But he's saying the light is who you are. Light comes from within. In fact, it, it, it encompasses your, oh, your entire spiritual being and your body. Look at Luke 11, verse 33. You look at Luke's version. Luke says, no one, after lighting a lamp, puts it in a cellar or under a basket, but on a stand so those who enter may see the light. You see, that sounds very similar to our passage today. Now, you look at verse 34. Your eye is the lamp of your body. When your eye is healthy, your whole body is full of light. But when it is bad, your body is full of darkness. Now, Luke gives a different illustration. Now, what Luke is talking about is spiritual eyes to see. And when he refers, when Luke refers to your eyes and your body, he's basically saying that your eyes allow you to see everything, and that gives meaning and context to who you are, everything that you, you experience in terms of your body. And so that means that if you're physically blind, it's darkness. At least from what you see, everything is dark. And so what you experience, it's darkness. Right? So you have to depend on hearing. And you have to depend on some form of imagination. And that's what he says. But, but when you take it into spiritual context, he's saying then your spiritual eyes, your spiritual eyes are important. And if you can see Christ, because he is the light, and if he lives in you, if you can see things spiritually, then it adds 
being, it adds essence and purpose to your entire life and your entire body. Where do you see this? You see this as, as, as the illustration extends in Luke 11.35. It says, therefore, based on this illustration, be careful lest the light in you be darkness. So if you can't see Christ as Messiah, and if you don't have spiritual eyes to see things according to the word of God, then everything that you see in this world will be marred by worldliness and sin, and you lack a spiritual insight. Right Then verse 36, if then your whole body is full of light, meaning if you're truly a genuine believer, having no part in dark, it will be wholly bright as when a lamp with, it, with its ray gives you light. So when you consider this, you consider where we were before Christ came. This is the world Christ came to. Right, We were in the darkness and we were waiting without hope and without light until Christ came. He came to fulfill the law and the prophets and to give us that light. He filled us with light. And so this really brings us back to Christ. It's about being. And so this morning, how this passage confronts us is we have to ask whether or not you and me, we have to ask, are we genuine believers? Not are you doing evangelism. That's, that's the next step. Are you doing missions? Saying, do you have Christ? If you're not shining, then it's not about whether you're doing something right or wrong. It's about who you are. Are you a Christian, beloved? That's why this passage is confrontational. You know, a lot of people say, oh, that's a familiar passage. I don't have to listen. That's your thinking. I'm not sure if you're a believer, right? Because that's the confrontation. It's, it's, it's a loss of purpose. It's, 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 they knew these passages, these Pharisees, these religious leaders, Israel, they knew about the Messiah. They knew prophecies about the Messiah, but they weren't salty. They had lost their purpose because they had lost sight of Christ. And that leads us to point number two, salt. What is the meaning it's a pure and effective witness. And we begin now by looking at the purity of heart. Remember that only Christ can bring about purity. Only Christ, not sacrifices, not good works. Only Christ. And so look at verse 13, a pure and effective witness. Verse 13, Matthew records Jesus saying confrontationally, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, meaning purpose, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything. That's pretty bad, right? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. So there's no such thing as half salty. Well, I'm kind of salty, when I feel like it, or during Christmas, or Thanksgiving, or Easter, I'm kind of salty when I'm on mission. And Jesus is saying, no, 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 if you are not salty, you're, you're, you're useless for his purposes. Now, salt as a metaphor illustrates how our relationship with Christ ought to impact the world. And so back then, practically, salt was used to preserve, it was used to season, and it was used to purify. Right, so there are many uses of salt. But first it was used, it was used to preserve food. Back then there was no refrigeration. And so if they would rub salt into meat, it would preserve the meat a little longer. 
Obviously, salt was used for seasoning food and giving, giving some good taste. It was also used for fertilizing the ground. It was, it was also a purifying and cleaning agent, not only for food, but for, for things in general. But one of the, one of the most effective ways was, was, yes, to preserve food. So we have to ask, our, as believers, are we preserving the values of God or what is good in this world of moral decay? And then seasoning, are we providing a taste of his coming kingdom? And purification, are we living as agents of purification? Now, I want to emphasize purification a little more. Because for those of you who are smart, unlike me, who is unlearned, uh, and I did not pass chemistry in, in high school, okay, um, I, I, I did, but I cheated. I copied the other person's grade just to get a C in high school. Uh, I mean, I copied the other person's workbook every single day. But salt, for those of you who actually pay attention in, in life, salt is a stable co- compound. Am I right? Correct me if I'm wrong. Okay. How can salt lose its saltiness? Well, the salt used in the ancient world was rarely a pure sodium chloride form. The salt that was collected around the Dead Sea, and this would be the place where Jesus ministered, it contained a mixture of different minerals. In this sense, salt is still salt, but it could, it's still stable, but it could become impure. And impure salt loses its saltiness in Effectiveness. Why is this important? Why is this important? Because of what we mentioned earlier. Who is Jesus' primary opponent? The scribes, the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the religious leaders. And he, through the Sermon on the Mount, keeps on addressing hypocrisy and impurity. Impure hearts. He's talking about the purity of the heart. Right? Ineffectiveness. As a nation, Israel was no longer salty. The leaders were no longer pure in hearts, and they had lost their effectiveness. And as a result, the people of God fell constantly into worldliness and idolatry. And they failed to serve their purpose. They were no longer salty. And at a deeper level, they, they did not have a permanent relationship with God, which points to their loss of purpose. Okay, I want you to see something at a deeper level. And this is something that I, I think a lot of times uh, we miss out on when we, when we look at the salt and light passage. Because oftentimes we, we talk about salt as a preservative, salt as a seasoning, salt as a purifying agent, which is correct. But remember that the Pharisees and, and Sadducees supposedly understood parts of the Old Testament and the Pharisees all of the Old Testament And so we have to ask ourselves, how was salt used in terms of the temple operation that Jesus is confronting? How was it used in religious life? And so if you'll look at Leviticus 2.13, which I have overhead for you. Leviticus 2.13 tells us, it says, You shall season all your grain offerings with salt. You shall not let the salt of the covenant with your God be missing from your grain offering. With all your offerings, you shall offer salt. And what this tells us is that salt symbolizes the permanent covenant relationship that Israel was supposed to have with God. And salt was consumed and it was offered up to Yahweh as God's permanent covenant with Israel. Let me show you another passage. It's not just one passage. Uh, but, but you look at Numbers... 1819, right? It says, all 
the holy contributions that the people of Israel present to the Lord, I give to you and to your sons and daughters with you as a perpetual due. And notice what it says. It says, it is a covenant of salt. That's weird, a covenant of salt. A covenant of salt forever before the Lord for you and for your offspring offspring after you. What, what is that saying? It's saying that in worship services, in religious ceremony, the salt symbolized the permanence of Israel's supposed relationship with God. Meaning if you're in relationship with God, it's supposed to be permanent. And if you're constantly in relationship with God, because if God is the one that brings about the saltiness and the light in you, as long as you're in permanent relationship with God, you will live out his purpose. But if that relationship is severed, then you've lost his purpose. Interesting. We understand now the, where Jesus is getting at. He's going to eventually get to the gospel where if you don't have a relationship with Jesus, you have nothing. Right? Second Chronicles. Second Chronicles uh, 13, 15. Sorry, I don't have it overhead for you. But Second Chronicles 13, verse 5. 2 Chronicles 13, verse 5. It says, Ought you not know that the Lord God of Israel gave the kingship over Israel forever, so the e eternality, to David and his sons by a covenant of salt? So that one you'll have to look up yourself. But Second Chronicles 13, 15. Again, the chronicler is describing this eternal covenant with David, and symbolically, it's a covenant of salt. So again, salt describes the permanence. Now let me put that in context with you. This is what Jesus is saying to me, to you, and to the religious leaders. He's saying, you've broken the covenant. The covenant is broken. It's no longer permanent. The, the permanence of the covenant is broken. Your sacrifices... Your temple system, your good works will not restore you to a lasting relationship. The saltiness, meaning the permanence of your relationship is severed. And because of this, you're no longer living as my people. You understand what Jesus is saying to the religious leaders and to all of Israel. And then by implication to us. Because you're, you have a broken relationship with God, you're no longer salty. Because you're not connected to me. That's why I said earlier, this is a matter of salvation, not evangelism. This is not the Great Commission. The Great Commission is about missions and evangelism. This is talking about people's salvation. It's talking about if you're saved, you're salt. If you're not saved, you've lost your purpose. The relationship is severed. It's broken. The temple sacrifice, the system is corrupt. It's broken. You've lost your purpose. You've lost your saltiness. And I think in application to us, Jesus would be saying, your Sunday attendance, your giving, your service, it's not salty. Because you failed in understanding the genuine relationship to Christ. The problem is not a lack of evangelism. The problem is, the problem is evangelism is not happening because you've never been evangelized. The problem is not a lack of witness the problem is your life is not a witness because your character cannot be transformed because you haven't experienced that saving conversion. This is confrontational. So woe to all of you who sit here this morning and saying, we've heard this passage a million times and it's kind of boring. It's a little too salty. It's not too salty for us anymore. This confronts me as your shepherd. 
that are we preaching the word of God? Are we confronting lovingly, gently with the gospel? And what does it mean to be people marked by Christ? Because if we don't have Christ, we will never have the light. And that leads us to point number three. Point number three is another confrontational illustration where Jesus points at the failure of purpose, which is light is meant to be visible. Visibility. Light, a visible witness. That's point number three. We see this in verses 14 and 16. The metaphor of light is meant to show visibility. Verse 14, you are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. Again, the purpose of visibility, the purpose of light, the purpose of a city on a hill, right? And it says, why would you put it under a basket? It gives light to everyone. And then verse 16, it says, in the same way, let your light shine before others. Meaning if your light is not shining, if people around you don't know or don't see that you're a Christ follower, you know, then what's the purpose? You've lost your purpose. Then where is Jesus in your life? So they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Let me show you what Israel's leaders should have understood and they should have known. Isaiah 42, verse 6, it describes in the context of the coming Messiah, and and it warns Israel of their missionary purpose and their missionary calling as a nation, that Israel was not supposed to have a fortress mentality. This is where the Essenes have failed to understand the essence of their witness and their purpose and their calling. Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord. I've called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations. So Israel, yes, you're supposed to be set apart from the world in terms of worldly thinking and worldly idolatry, but you're not supposed to escape the world. You're supposed to remain in this world as light. How do you do that? if you fail to engage people. And they failed because they judged the nations. They judged the Gentiles. They judged the Samaritans. Isaiah 49, 6. Isaiah 49, 6. It says, he says, it is too light a thing that you should be my servant to raise up the tribes of Jacob and to bring back the preserved of Israel. I will make you as a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of the earth. Meaning Christ did not just come for Israel. Yes, he came for Israel, but it's too light, meaning it's, it's not enough. Jesus wants more glory. God's plan wants, he wants more. God wants the nations. God wants to redeem all of the cosmos and all of the creation. And so, so God did not send his son only for Israel but Israel and the nations to be a light for the nations that my salvation may reach the ends of this world. And Israel failed to understand this. And so you go back to Matthew chapter 5, verse 16. It says, let your light shine before others. And once again, I want you to see this internally. Take your Bibles and turn with me to Ephesians chapter 5, verse 8. I want you to see this Metaphor in application by the Apostle Paul. Ephesians 5, verse 8.
Remember that we were in darkness and Christ came. He came from an eternal throne of glory into a dark world. He came as a humble child. As we're celebrating Advent, we remember that. He grew up and he began to preach and proclaim the gospel. And those of us whose hearts are drawn by the Holy Spirit efficaciously to the message of Christ, our eyes are opened and enlightened. And it's not just mental knowledge. It's not just, oh, that sounds like a great story. That sounds like an attractive offer that I can have eternal life. But the eternal life in the person of Christ takes root in us, meaning the Word of God begins to take flesh in us, and the Word who became flesh takes on flesh in us. And the gospel being the Word of God begins to play itself us through our bodies, through our thinking, through our actions. Now look at verse 8, Ephesians 5, verse 8. It says, for a one time, beloved, you were darkness. Notice it doesn't say you were in darkness. I'm reading the ESV, it's very clear. It says, for at one time you were darkness. You see the, 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 the contrast, the converse, you are light. <laughs> it's not being in the light and being in the darkness. It says, you are light or you are darkness, beloved. It says, you are darkness. Wherever you go, it's an absence of God. Right? Uh, an unbeliever goes around. There's no God in him or her. It's an absence. But if you have Christ, you are a presence. People ask, where is the kingdom of God now? And we say it's in believers. It's presence. Again, see, that's why it's not just a faithful project. That's good that you go on missions, you go do evangelism. But it's faithful presence within this every sphere of life that God has called you to. Now let me read Ephesians 5.8. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light then. For the fruit of the light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. How do you expose them? By simply being yourself. So you see that it's not even you trying to do something. By mere essence of you waking up and breathing and existing in this world and going to your children in the home, going to work in this world, going to your community and going to your friends and family, that you are light. Wherever you go, you're light. You're exposing darkness by your character, by the everyday decisions that you make, by what you do. And I know this is easier said than done, right? So you see that, verse 11, take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness. Instead, expose them. Verse 12, for it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. Talk about sinful things. But when anything is exposed by the light, meaning you are the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Meaning if you are a visible, genuine believer, you are light. Because the light of the gospel has transformed your heart. Therefore, it says, awake, O sleeper. Meaning we were dead. This is about salvation. We were dead in sin. And arise from the dead spiritually, and Christ will shine on you. And then it goes on, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but wise, etc., etc., etc. 
going in to what it means to be a believer in the context of various relationships. You see very clearly where this is coming from. Paul's taking directly and giving application from the words and the teachings of Jesus. Now back in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, it says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I want you to see this in application in church life. Take your Bibles and turn to 1 Peter 2.12. 1 Peter 2.12. 1 Peter 2, verse 12. The purpose of good works. Remember, good works don't save. That's Jesus' message to the legalist. Good works don't save. Instead, they show everybody who you are as light. 1 Peter 2.12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles. And in this context, it's talking about unbelievers. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable. Well, how do you do that if you're running from the world, separatist? How do you do that if you're fading into the world, becoming worldly? How do you do that if you're constantly reacting and defending and fighting against the world? Right? Instead, it says, keep your conduct among the Gentiles, meaning you are to be among the unbelievers, honorable, so that when they speak against you, which they will as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and look at the same sentence that Jesus says. And what does it say? And glorify God on the day of visitation. Right? So the purpose of good works, back in Matthew's context, is not so that people can look at you and say, wow, you're so good, because that's what the Pharisees wanted. The purpose of good works is not to say, look how good I am, God, save me. But the purpose of good works is purely so that people can see who you really are. Are you worth your salt? Am I worth my salt? Are we preaching the gospel? Are we preaching the word of God? Right. So let me give you the big idea, then let me give you some direct application that's convicting for myself as well. The big idea this morning is that Christ calls us to be a faithful presence of his kingdom within this world. Christ calls us as his disciples to be a faithful presence of his kingdom in this, within this world. And the only way we are a faithful presence is if his presence exists in us. Here's the application. I'm going to give you a general application. I'm going to give you a direct application that I feel like speaks to our context, which is convicting for me. You see, generally, each of you have a different sphere of influence. For some of you, it's the classroom. For some of you, it's the athletic field. For others of you, it's your home with your kids. For some of you, it's your community. For others of you, it's the business world, the medical field, the world of arts, the world of music. I want you to consider how society and culture is built and shaped. You know, what, where do ideas come from and where are they generated and propagated? Ideas come everywhere. You know, you work really hard, right? We work, work really hard to send our, our, our children to university. Or for some of you students, you re- work really hard to get to university. Unless you, you go to a fine Christian university like I did, uh, then most likely what you're going to learn, the values are not evangelical conservative values. And so that's beginning to shape minds. But, it, but you know that the shaping of the mind comes from where else? Social media, news, the world of arts, the world of music, the world of entertainment. What is shaping society? And what popular people in entertainment and music and art have to say, right? Politics is only one small sliver. 
Then you talk about literature. Literature shapes cultures and builds culture over mind. Over time, I mean. It begins to shape your mind. Classic works of writing continue to get passed down and are read by children from a, from a young age up into their AP classes and they're educated in the mind. You look at all the ways in this world. The world, think of a circle and all the different spheres of influence. And I want to ask, where are evangelical Christians? How do we tend to, to, to make an impact, Right? And so you think about what is shaping culture. Now, for each of you, you're called to a different sphere of this circle. You're called to a different arena, and that's what I meant. Some of you are in arts. Some of you, God willing, maybe God gives you a platform in entertainment. Don't shy away from that. Don't go into your evangelical enclave. We need you there making an impact, being you and shining the presence of his kingdom, right? But it's sad that I believe, especially among us, Conservatives, we tend to shy away and run away from the areas that are actually shaping culture negatively, right? So, so many people look at the digital Babylon, which is true, our digital world, and look at digital world and say it's evil, which, yes, it can be used for evil, but if we don't have enough sharp thinking, evangelicals publishing engaging and making your presence felt in the digital world, then we've lost that realm of influence. And how many of the next generation and this current generation is going to get their education of values, not from anything they learn in a classroom or a decision made in some some Supreme Court, but instead they're being shaped each and every day by what creeps into their newsfeed. And so woe to us if we shy away and, and, and walk away. This means that what Jesus is calling us to, to be is his disciples, which means we must make disciples, right? And so each and every one of us are called into a different sphere, and we cannot shy away and hide. This is convicting for me. I love James Davison Hunter. He's a sociologist from the University of Virginia. And this is not a theology book. It's a sociology book. And he wrote this book in 2010, which was, which was groundbreaking, uh, at least for me, in terms of thinking how to engage the world. And it's entitled To Change the World, The Irony, Tragedy, and Possibility of Christianity in the Late Modern World, an Oxford University Press uh, publication. And I commend it to you. Okay, but James Davidson Hunter, he says, in every sphere of this world, when an absence of God gives way to his presence, being, being enacted through believers, then the word we speak becomes authentic and trustworthy. Meaning, we can shy away into our different communities, and we can preach the gospel all we want in the church. We can get into our small groups, which is great, in our community groups, and talk all about Jesus. But if we are no longer being Christ-centered, Christ-centered missionaries in our life, in, our, in the world, then the word we speak is not authentic. But the word we speak about the gospel becomes authentic and trustworthy when we are enacting his presence. When everybody else who is, is darkness, remember the words of Ephesians, you don't have Christ, you are darkness. You have Christ, you are light. Everybody else who is darkness, it's absence of God. Wherever the believer goes, you bring the presence of God. That is his kingdom. 
That's why the, the Beatitudes and the Sermon on the Mount is about his kingdom. Now let me give you a specific application. This is convicting for me because I fall under the laziness of this, right? What does it look like for us here in suburban Southern California? I'm not talking about urban and urban context. I'm not talking about downtown Manhattan. I'm not talking about Seattle, right? The liberal places. I'm talking about suburban Southern California. I'm talking about Orange County. Talk about us over here in the eastern Los Angeles County and, and parts of San Bernardino County, the suburbs, right? I think if you're in a church like ours, you care about conservative values. I surely do. And one of the ways I seek, and I think most of you do too, to make an impact in this world is voting. And I want to put before you today that voting is easy, but discipleship is hard. And my premise is that of this application is the voting is the easy way out. And discipleship is the hard way. And we should do both. So if you're not voting and you're not making disciples, woe to you. There's a lot of busy evangelical Christians in this, in this room, including myself. We care about society. At least we'll complain about it. That's a good thing that we care about society, meaning the moral stance of society. But it is my observation that when we vote, we are placing our hope in someone else being salt and light for us. Let me illustrate this. I am hoping that if I simply fill out my ballot, I don't even want to go to the, the polling place. I, I mail mine in. I drop it off at the library. That if I fill out my ballot, the God willing and a miracle would happen and you would have conservative politicians to some degree, at least for a term or two. You'd have Supreme Court justices, which is good. And if simply that political sphere of that circle is upholding the sanctity of life, God's view of gender, the biblical view of marriage, that we're going to be okay and the next generation will be okay. And what did I just say earlier? Guess what? You can have all conservative Supreme Court justices. You can have Franklin Graham as the president of the United States. Okay? You can have a conservative Congress and everything. You can have all of that. But that's not the voice speaking to this generation and the younger generation. The world is still going to speak. And they're coming through social media. And they're coming through the news media. They're coming through the education system. They're coming from every other, other sphere. They're coming through art. They're coming through music. They're coming through entertainment. The three areas the Christians shy away from. That's shaping the next generation. And so voting is good. Do it. But it's easy. I confess that to you. It's easy. It's hard to sit down with someone who's 20, 10, 20, 30 years younger than you and have a relationship and to teach kingdom values and what it means to think like a Christian. Because we're busy. Voting's easy. Discipleship's hard. But if we fail to make disciples and if we simply place our trust in political power, it is the wrong source of power. Because political power only upholds this small sphere, 
But the gospel works differently. The gospel goes within the heart. The gospel enters into the heart. And the gospel changes people from within. And the only way the gospel is implanted is through what? People coming to Christ. But then how do people who come to Christ live out the gospel? Through discipleship. People like you and me sitting down and teaching people, this is what it means to be a Christian. This is what it means to live for Christ. So please don't get me wrong. The moral decline, the moral decline of society is a it, it bothers me. It should bother you. And voting is important and we should do it. But we cannot forget that the moral decline of society is a heart issue. And if we don't make disciples, that moral decline will begin to permeate within evangelical churches. And this is where discipleship begins in the home. It begins in the home with parents discipling their children. It begins in churches, with, with in your groups, discipling one another. And then it flows out into the world as we make disciple makers and we make disciples for Christ. And then the Great Commission makes sense. We go on missions. We do missions in each and every sphere that he calls us to because we are salt and we are light. So I want to close with this. Christ calls us, once again, big idea, Christ calls us to be a faithful presence of his kingdom within this world. Let me pray for us. Father, you sent your son Jesus Christ to reveal the the kingdom coming and to reconcile the lost, including us. You sent Jesus to redeem the whole creation and you did not, he did not despise the cross. For even in his suffering, he saw to the other side, knowing that his crucifixion and resurrection, his suffering was necessary for our salvation. Jesus, for our sake, you died. Father, I pray this morning that you would make us humble before this very familiar text. That you would remind us how critical it is that we are light and we are salt. Will you make us so through the regenerating work and the sanctifying work of your spirit? Will you fill us with your word so that the word and the application of the gospel through the scriptures would take flesh in our lives and that everywhere we go, we would enact the presence of your kingdom? And Father, I pray, Lord, then that you would push us to both vote and to make disciples. Equip us to do so. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.